0: From Irmo to Istanbul, from Taipei to Tunisia, we tell the stories of the people who make the world of international disputes turn. We give glimpses into their lives and give insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry from around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, it's great to be back here with you. And although it's now been a couple of days in each occasion, I want to wish a heartfelt, and joyous holiday celebration for each of the following holidays. First, for our listeners in the Muslim world, a pleasant Eid observance, and and for my American listeners, a liberty-filled and restorative Fourth of July celebration. Speaking of breaks, now is probably as good a time as any to advise that we'll be taking our usual August holiday hiatus where we will take a month off to rest and recover and finish up the second half of the show starting in August. But before we can get there, we have an action-packed July full of episodes to bring you for your arbitration listening enjoyment. And to kick off July right, let's talk about today's guest. If you're listening to this episode around the time it was released, I'm currently attending the 16th Annual Conference of the Commercial Arbitration Center of the Portuguese Chamber of Commerce here in Lisbon. In recent years, I have had more and more opportunities to engage with the Portuguese arbitration community, dating all the way back to Season 1, where we had Felipe Carvalho on the show. And it's been an absolute pleasure getting to see firsthand how the community is developing and getting to know the personalities that are part of its foundation and part of pushing the arbitration community in Portugal forward. Our guest this week is one of those persons who is absolutely a name to know, not just in the Portuguese arbitration world, but in the international arbitration community more broadly. Her name is Sofia Martins. And aside from an active slate, both as counsel and arbitrator, she is also the recently elected president of the Portuguese Arbitration Association. We had a chance to catch up with Sofia recently for a fun conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. So sit back, relax, grab a cup of coffee in the pastel de nada and enjoy my conversation with Sofia Martins. And we will see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business and dispute resolution. Listeners, we are with you live today on location in sunny Lisboa, Portugal, Lisbon. And we're here to welcome a very special guest that we've just introduced a few moments ago. Whom congratulations are in order for, but we'll get to that in just a moment. I'm speaking, of course, of Miss Sophia Martins. Sophia, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Chris. Thanks for having
0: me. All right. Well, thank you for that, Sophia. Well, look, before we get too far into your backstory, why don't we start at the very beginning and ask you the question that we ask all guests on the show Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Okay, so
1: my name, as you've heard, is uh, Sofia Martins, or in Portuguese pronunciation, Sofia Martins. I'm obviously a lawyer and arbitration practitioner based in in, uh, Lisbon, uh, where I co-head the disputes of a Portuguese law firm, Miranda and Associados, so that's the professional resume. Other than that, I am a mother of two, happily married for uh, nearly 24 years, that's a long long and uh so that's that's the short bio where am i from it's a little bit more difficult to answer that question because i could tell you that i'm from portugal but technically i'm not so i was born in the u.s in -hmm. washington dc by chance my dad uh, was a diplomat and he was posted there at the time so i just happened to be born in um in dc uh my whole family was actually from the north of Portugal, but I've never lived in the north of Portugal, mm-hmm. because obviously uh, when when we uh, came to Portugal, because of my dad's job, uh, we were based in Lisbon. So I'm Portuguese, extremely Portuguese, Cheers. but technically I'm not from Portugal, and I don't <laughs> live in anywhere close to where my whole family was from. Until the age of 12, I traveled around a lot. Uh, um... But I've been based here in Lisbon uh, since, the, uh, since the age of, um, of 12, and so so that's where I'm from. After having lived uh, in the States, obviously, but I came back very young, I then lived in Africa for a number of years, in Zimbabwe, more specifically, and then eventually found my way back to Portugal, where I've been ever since.
0: Very well, very well. Lots of interesting points to get into there. Um, but before we do that, um, like I alluded to in my read-in, congratulations, are in order for uh, I think some of the news that broke just yesterday. You are now, uh, I understand, the president of the APA, is that right?
1: That's correct. That's correct. Uh, and for the folks listening at home, what is the APA? So the APA is the Portuguese Arbitration uh, Association. It's a nonprofit organization that uh, aims basically to foster the knowledge um of arbitration as an alternative dispute uh, uh, mechanism and uh, it focuses essentially on commercial arbitration and investment arbitration too, although obviously we don't exclude other other types of arbitration which which you have in Portugal, but the main goal is basically to uh, uh, develop best practices, uh, foster knowledge of uh, uh, arbitration among users uh, with state courts. And obviously, uh, uh, also educate practitioners uh, um, to adopt best practices. And uh, so, it was founded, I think, 2010. Um, and yes, yesterday I was elected uh, as the first female chair of the organization. So, I'm very happy about that.
0: Well, fantastic. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely include a link to the organization in the show notes, but uh, that, that's definitely congratulations on our order.
1: Let, let me just update the site, the website first. Please. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs>
0: fair enough, fair enough. Um, well, look, uh, so pulling. let's rewind just a little bit. Uh, so lots of uh, interesting points that you mentioned in sort of your descript- description bio. Um, let's ask a very sort of basic question. So, you know, daughter of a diplomat, did you always know that you wanted to go into law and practice law, or how did that conversation come up?
1: Okay, uh, my mum tells me that when I was about eight years hmm. old, Eight nine years old, we were living in Zimbabwe at that time. Uh, You know there was the Perry Mason show, you know the old Perry Mason, classic, of course, of course, Raymond Burr, exactly. And my mum says that I would sit in front of the TV and just you know take it all in. (laughs) Okay. And at the age of ten, I declared that I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, okay. Declared it? And yes. All right, and put, it, put the world on notice. Yes, I put the world on notice that I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, and oddly enough, I mean, my dad was, um, he had a law degree. He tried being a lawyer. Um, and he gave up and went into the diplomatic corps. He didn't even finish his training period because apparently, uh, so my dad passed away when I was 12, so, you know, some stories our direct knowledge, our hand-me-downs, but but this I, I do remember him telling me. He told me that you know he was no good at it because he realised when he was doing his training period uh, that you know clients would come in and you know sob stories that they didn't have any money and he just couldn't ask for money. So he said, "I'm never going to make a job." Out of this. <laughs> yeah, and, right. and he was a man of the world, so he decided to go another route. But but I, I, I did have a passion for that, and obviously I was very young probably didn't know exactly what being an lawyer is at the time, but but I did have that passion. So from then onwards, I steered my studies and everything into law, with a little exception. When I was a, a 14, 14, 15, uh, so in Portugal, where I did my education since the age of 12, uh, when you get to what we call the ninth grade, you have to decide... Uh, uh, to go into a specific area. So this is sort of a bifurcation in in, in high school. Um, You can go into economics, you can go into science, you can go into uh, human studies or arts. And um, at the time, I had to, I mean, the obvious path was going into what we call humanities, uh, which was the direct path to uh, law. But you didn't have math.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: I was a great student at math. I loved math. I loved the logic. I loved the. And so suddenly I got the shivers, and you know maybe it's not law, maybe it's business management or something like that. Okay. And so I decided to take the hard way out, which was go into into economics. Okay. And then after the 11th grade, decide what I actually wanted to do, uh, because that would keep more options open. So that's what I did. I did it the hard way. Um, I went in high school into economics. And then at the end of 11th grade, I had already decided that I did want to go into law. That was indeed my passion. So I had to take an extra exam just to get equivalences. And then I applied to law school after 12th grade here in Lisbon.
0: Okay, and well, look, um, I'll just ask the next follow-up question from there. From, you know, young Sophia, the lawyer, or the now lawyer-to-be, where does the international arbitration, how does that happen? Where does that come from?
1: Okay, that comes a bit later, uh, because, so... I finished law school and um, I went to to work at a law firm, first as a trainee, stayed there as an associate for about 10 years, and actually the first time I heard about arbitration was there. Um, One of the partners in that firm was appointed as a co-arbitrator in a very big case at at the time, Uh, but we're talking 1996 when I started working, so in 1996, arbitration wasn't a thing in Portugal. You didn't hear about arbitration in law school, for sure. We just didn't hear about arbitration. If you think, I mean, the first arbitration law in Portugal goes back to 1986, so it was 10 years before that. There was a little domestic market, but very domestic, very far from what we consider to be uh, best practices today. Um, And, you know, it was essentially having a civil procedure outside of the courts. Um, and, you know, the notions of impartiality and dependence were still <laughs> sure. very, very vague, let's put it that way. So arbitration was not a thing. It was not studied, it was not lectured, it was not known, it was not really something. But, you know, at the time I remember thinking, oh, this, this should be interesting. I wasn't fortunate enough to be able to work on, 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 on that case. But, I mean, it did, you know, sort of leave a little tingling um inside and then uh well eventually I, I left that law firm. i started doing a lot of litigation also another step back back in the day when i started working you didn't have like you have today a specialization so you weren't a dispute lawyer or a corporate lawyer an A or corporate finance whatever you know you just did whatever came around yeah exactly it was only when i was about two three years into the profession that some Portuguese law firms started to organize themselves in practice areas. So I started out doing corporates, real estate, litigation, everything. I did have a passion for litigation. I liked it a lot. and so, I mean, obviously, I started getting a lot of uh, litigation cases in, in the firm where I was working, although I kept on doing, uh, for those 10 years, I did a bit of, well, not a bit of everything. I've never done tax, I've never done labor and that sort of stuff, but but I did do a lot of corporate stuff, you know, M&A, um, day-to-day corporate issues, contracts, um, all that stuff, lots of real estate as well. Sure. And I loved litigation. Uh, eventually, I left that firm and I went into another firm where I focused essentially once again on disputes and and, and corporate law. And it was at that firm. So that was after my first my eldest daughter was born. So I moved in two thousand four into that firm. And as chance would have it, one of our clients one day comes up uh, and says. Uh, We were party to an arbitration, the award sucks, Um, and we want to get rid of this award, what can we do? And so, um, senior partner comes up and says, okay, Sofia, you're the disputes girl, so... Figure it
0: out. Figure (laughs) (laughs) it (laughs) out. I said, oh God. Uh, That's when I had to study arbitration for the
1: first time. There was already some written stuff here in Portugal. And I had to dive into the world, you know, of arbitrability, due process, public policy, and I just got hitched. I said that this this is really something I want to do more of and study more. This was more or less at the time when uh, uh, Mediana at Nova started the the uh, first postgraduate uh, course in, in arbitration in Portugal, and I was actually thinking of signing up for the first edition. However, uh, the firm where I was working at the time uh, got invited to merge with uh, with a very large firm, Uriah Merendes. Oh well, yeah. And I mean, the timing wasn't right. Uh, so I went off. I went to Uriah Merendes, and uh, when I went to Uriah, I was fortunate enough to start doing some work first on some domestic cases. Then I started going to the. Uh, uh, to the Spanish Arbitration Club conferences in Madrid, where I got even more hitched on arbitration and started, you know, to get a bit of the feel of the international part of it. And as luck would have it, less than a year before I was at Uria, an international case comes in, ICC case, Portuguese client against a French uh, company. And uh, the partner who I worked with at the time, the head of dispute, said, Sophia, you're it. Um, so that was the beginning, let's call it, of uh, my international career uh, in, in, in arbitration. At the time, I took the PIDA as well, which the ICC used to hold. Yeah. And I mean, that, I think that, that's how that's it started. So it was, uh, I stumbled onto arbitration. I liked it. And then I just went for it.
0: Not, not an uncommon answer that people sort of stumble into it. That there's not like a grand plan. No, no um,
1: grand plan. No grand plan
0: at all. Okay, well, look, let's stay with that theme then. So, um, you know, we got the major, the foundational plot points. We skipped ahead in time a little bit. Let's, I guess, think about it a little bit from a different perspective. Now, 25 years on from 90, the mid-90s, you know, Portugal is now seeing all this increased commercial activity, increased investment, all these types of things. You know, you mentioned that... At the time, back in the 90s, arbitration wasn't really a thing that was sort of the popular or mainstay sort of thing in like Portuguese legal practice. Have you seen that? Is that different now? Is, that, is it more embraced? What's I mean, what's the feeling on the ground here in Portugal?
1: Completely different, completely different. It's just, just, just two different worlds. I mean, basically, commercial arbitration saw its huge development, in Western Europe in particular, during the 20th century. Second half, especially after the yeah. Second World War. Now, as it so happens, Portugal uh, at the time <laughs> was under a pretty tough regime <laughs> uh, until 1974, so that there was a dictatorship, and which meant you know
0: arbitration doesn't thrive <laughs> in dictatorships. As it turns out. As it turns
1: out. So um, while you know the rest of continental uh, Western Europe was was evolving in that direction, Portugal was not. And and as I I think I mentioned earlier, it was only in the early 80s that uh, that the first arbitration act was only produced. But it was still, you know, it was something that wasn't known. And Portugal was still very closed to the rest of the world because one of the other aspects of the regime that we had for the most part of the 20th century was precisely, you know, we did we didn't do the rest of the world. It was just us and the and the colonies, which was an obscene thing. Um, And so the opening of Portugal to the rest of the world begins effectively in the 80s. Uh, especially when Portugal becomes a part of the uh, then European economic community, today the EU. So that's when you start getting, you know, inflow from the outside and people start going abroad. That said, obviously in, in the 90s it was still it was still a very early stages of that. Um, and so arbitration took its time to sink in. As I said at the beginning, although the old law was 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 a good law for the time, it did have its shortcomings. Uh, and so from the early 2000s, some part of the, I don't know if it was even a community at that time, but I mean, at least some players started realizing, you know, that there, there were things that should be improved and amended which is actually when the Portuguese Arbitration Association comes up and was founded. So that was the beginning of a, of a small uh, community that you know wanted to do different things. Um, and, uh, and that's when the project for the new Arbitration Act comes up. Uh, it was actually drafted by the Portuguese Arbitration Association, it took a long time. There were about three projects, because it went to and throw, to and throw, and as chance would have it, every cloud has a silver lining. Uh, Portugal got hit by a very severe financial crisis um, in 2011, after Lehman, so it was the aftermath of the international financial crisis, and uh, we had to be bailed out by uh, the European Union, the FMI, the Troika. and. One of the items on the memorandum of understanding for the bailout during that financial crisis was you have to modernise your arbitration system. So the Portuguese Arbitration Association, said, yeah, we've got a project. <laughs> we've submitted it to you like a couple of times, so um, it's been back and forth. now let's go for it. And and there was you know tight timing because Portugal had to deliver to be able to get the funds. Sure. And so the, the Portuguese Arbitration Association was asked at the time to, in a month, uh, deliver the project, which, which we did. I mean, there was already a project, so it wasn't it was a scratch. In already, right, yeah. um, which we did, and and shortly thereafter, we got the current arbitration um, act um, passed as legislation. So I would say that. Slightly before there was already a movement, but especially since the enactment of the uh, uh, current arbitration law, there has been a revolution. Not only because of the law, but also because, um, and maybe I shouldn't say this in this book, but, but it is my opinion and it is what I think, so I'll just say it. My generation started going outside.
0: Okay. I, I went... In the sense, like physically, like... Physically, yeah, like, okay. like physically, <laughs> right. you know, we
1: started going abroad. We started going to conferences abroad. Uh, we started, you know, to get out of our little corner of the world and see what was happening outside. And um, which Portugal
0: has been known to do. It,
1: it used to <laughs> in the past. exactly, but we, we forgot about that for right. some time. And uh, uh, I mean, I'm being unfair. It wasn't only my generation. Obviously, you have some people in, uh, um, in the old generation who's then we but which obviously. In. Intentional
0: bot. Um, yes, yes. Yes,
1: yes. Um, and and you know, we started to try to import that into Portugal. And for instance, as I said, you know, I mean I started out with Spain and I got really involved in the Spanish under 40 community at the time. I was invited to, to apply to be one of the co-coordinators uh, of the SEA. There hadn't been any foreign co-coordinator until then. Uh, they opened up a specific uh, spot at the time and there were six coordinators of the Menos 40 and they opened up a spot for a non-Spanish and I, w- I was the first. And then a year later, Nuno who's currently the head of disputes at Linklater's here in Lisbon, uh, said, Sofia, not only me, Sofia, Miguel Amada, and Ricardo Guimarães said, why we, don't we do this in Portugal too? So we set up the first under 40 uh, group in, in Portugal. And, um, and I mean luckily you know that's, a, that's one of the positive aspects of globalization. Got lots of negative aspects, but there are also some positive aspects. And uh, you know access became much easier. Um, younger people started having the possibility, which wasn't a thing uh, when I was studying you know to do Erasmus, to go and do Valencia abroad. Uh, so, it, it's just been a whole movement um, that that I'm happy to have been a part of in the beginning, uh, but that has grown much, much more. I mean, if we look at the younger generations today in Portugal, they are, you
0: know...
1: There's plenty. That, there's just so many of them and really good and really interested. Thought and, leaders uh, and taking yes. up actual...
0: yeah. Um, you know, I wonder... When you think about the Portuguese legal community, um, or maybe the Portuguese-speaking world will broaden it up that uh, way a little bit, what is something that you think maybe outsiders might miss, something that's not immediately obvious when it comes to doing work with those parts of the world?
1: Cultural aspects, for sure. Um, Cultural aspects and historical issues and, well, Portuguese-speaking worlds. We've got two types yes. of Portuguese speaking lot. So obviously we've got Portugal, then we've got Brazil. Sure. Uh, and then we've got uh, Africa.
0: Africa, well, even I guess Macau might be considered its own separate thing, but yeah. It's a separate
1: thing. Well, yeah. then in Asia we've got Macau and we've got Timor. Cool. Uh, yes. Now, all these countries, uh, well, we can group them into different categories. So Brazil is Brazil. Brazil has been a sovereign nation for. 200 plus years um, and you know, they're very developed they have their idiosyncrasies but it's highly developed legal markets in terms of arbitration so let's not put uh, Brazil in the same box. Then you have the African countries. The African countries um, are very young countries in the sense that they only became independent uh, in 1975 right. or about uh, different dates. So after the revolution took place in Portugal and, 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 and we finally said, okay, colonies is not a good thing to have at this day and age. Um, but basically, most of those countries have close to, you know, close to 50 years' existence, but half of that time they underwent internal civil wars that were, you know, very savage and that didn't allow development and growth. So, you know, and the legal market obviously only develops when you have, you know, stability and, and thriving economies. So, obviously, we're talking about countries that don't have a legal market that is as sophisticated as someone from the Western world would uh, would would uh, be used to, uh, although obviously things have changed Ginormously, especially in the last 20 years. Uh, But then they're also, and and naturally so, very protective of their internal uh, legal markets. Sure, of course. Which which is perfectly normal and understandable. I mean, you know, finally we have our country, we want to do things our way. So I think this cultural and historical uh, element is key for anyone who is faced with or wishes to. um, um, approach um, this part of the of the world uh, as a practitioner. Uh, you can't go in like a cowboy at all.
0: <laughs> at so, all. So yeah. having a respect for those yes. who have been there, how things are done. Yes. And even if it is internationalized, there still has to be that sort of deference understood. Yes. For doing work there.
1: That's that's my strong, very strong opinion. Sure. No, I think that
0: makes sense. Um, yeah. I mean, because there is sometimes this attitude of some countries. Earth practitioners from places kind of just showing up and trying to change the entire nature or culture and then just is, yeah, and, um, and, and yeah. especially
1: just assume that things are done the same way everywhere and they're not yeah, um, no, and they're right. not so, so you have to respect the rhythm you have to respect the pace you have to respect the the recent history the cultural um, element the um, and, the, and th- there's one characteristic that I think cultural as well but that, that, that would be common to all Lusophone uh, uh, um, speaking countries which is you know for instance take Americans you know you're very blunt you're very you know straight to the point uh,
0: has been known to be true <laughs> as a general rule obviously yeah,
1: yeah. Portuguese speaking peoples aren't like that typically sure You know, know, they're more uh, um, delicate in the way of uh, speaking, in the way of presenting things. (laughs) Maybe this can be perceived uh, 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 by someone that's more blunt, and I'm a bit blunt, as, you know, beating around the bush. But it is a cultural trait. Uh, uh, So this is something that should also be considered. Uh, um, Once again, don't go in like a cowboy, because it can be ill-perceived. Uh, by someone from these countries, Portugal included here.
0: And well, that's right. Um, I'm also getting the sense that they're not going to grant discovery requests. <laughs> yeah. No, that's not a thing. <laughs> no, that, that, that's okay, fair enough. Not a thing. Uh, well, you know, so speaking of um, discovery, we use that as a segue. Um, you know, one of the things that you have talked about, mentioned uh, previously in other venues, has been effective case management. Um, you know, I wonder. Um, do you have any high-level tips or pointers or thoughts that might come to mind when it comes to discussing how to effectively manage um, a case in the arbitration context? Yes. One, one, one
1: growing uh, concern that I have, Chris, in all honesty, and, and now that I'm sitting more and more uh, often as, as an arbitrator, is the, the, the humongous dimension of some written pleadings. Hmm. People have to start writing less. More concisely much more concisely, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got briefs that are 500, 600, 1,000 pages long, they're books. I mean, if you want to get the tribunal's attention, you cannot write 1,000 pages. I mean, I know there are cases that are extremely complex, but 1,000 pages is a novel.
0: Yes.
1: How can you expect a panel of three arbitrators to... Well, first of all, you can't read it in one breath. I mean, you, you just can't. No. You just can't. And by the time you've reached page 1,000, the detail that was at page 50, I mean, its it's, it's gone. gone. It's gone. And what I also find is a lot of re- repetition. Yes, know? unnecessary. Unnecessary repetition. And... Actually, I must say that once I started being an arbitrator, I became a much better lawyer, I think. (laughs) I think, Mm -hmm. because that's one one of the things, you know, some lawyers have this issue well, if I repeat the same idea over and over again, it will stick. No, no, it just gets
0: boring. Yes, and they start to skip. You start to skip. So
1: if by the fifth time that you repeat the same idea, you have actually added a little detail that wasn't there before. The reader will just, you know, skim through it. It's, it. He's not paying the attention he or she should anymore. So, in terms of case management, I mean, I don't like as an arbitrator to impose page limits, but I do think that counsel has to be wary of the audience they're playing to if they want to be effective. A thousand-page briefs or four hundred-page briefs don't cut it. They honestly don't cut it. Um, It's a a disservice to their clients.
0: Well, I I think that's true. Um, You know, some of my early mentors, um, when it comes to advocacy, have made that exact point that if you can't be concise, if you can't summarize your argument down to the main things. Now, there might be some things that you absolutely have to expound on. Exactly. Those are nuanced things, but the main plot points, the main reasons why your client should win or prevail, you should be able to do that, you know, page to page. Exactly. And I mean...
1: One one technique that I, I honestly think works is, you know, I read this uh, somewhere, I don't remember where, but it's, you know, first tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. Yeah. You anyway, know, you need to have, you know, a, 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 an intro, which is not a sub
0: story. I mean, your intro, my case is
1: about this, and I'm going to talk about A, B, C, and D with links to the sections. Yes. And then each section, you develop the idea. And then at the end, punchline, conclusion. I think that makes it, but obviously this applies a lot of homework because you have to idealize the structure and then you have to trim it down to the essentials.
0: You know, there's an old saying, I think it might have been Mark Twain that says that, sorry, I didn't have more time to be brief. Exactly, <laughs> exactly.
1: And I know, listen, I'm a lawyer too. I know sometimes our clients don't help Many times I cried still health because, you know, it's two days before the filing, and we're still receiving documents and information that we'd asked for six weeks ago. Yes. No. It happens. Uh, but still, I, I think more effort needs to go into planning, into conciseness.
0: Sure. No, 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 that's true. I mean, we'll look and I'll say from the client perspective, sometimes a document that you as an internal counsel have asked for Any times to your colleagues, Um, someone just came back from leave and they only had just now to turn it over and you get it and it's still something that uh, takes time. But no, you're absolutely right. Um, There can be that tendency to get a little bit long in the tooth, but thinking about who's going to be reading it, how it's going to be interpreted, those are all critical.
1: Especially when you have technical expert reports, which in turn have another... 300 pages plus 500 pages of uh, uh, exhibits to the expert report. I mean, it's humanely impossible to retain every single detail. Um, so that's an additional reason why, in your brief, you have to be very, very uh, straight to the point. Well,
0: that's right. And, you know, one thing that you know I've seen being discussed at conferences more frequently um, is, is sort of the issue of, of early determination of issues, but really it's sort of the second case management conference or additional case management conferences that have come along. I wonder if you've seen that uh, in practice. Uh, uh, ish. Uh,
1: but that, that's another point that I wanted to, to, to go to because I, th- I think it can uh, be useful. And it's funny because of our, I've always said, you know, you know, civil procedure rules don't apply in arbitration here in Portugal because that, that was a thing many years ago. Now it's clear it doesn't. But there is one thing about civil procedure in Portugal that's interesting and that goes a bit to early determination, and which you do see here in domestic cases, the parties asking for it, which is basically you have the written phase of the uh, pleadings, and then the tribunal is asked to issue an order um, basically setting out the facts that are already non-disputed mm-hmm. and defining the... Issues to be discussed at the hearing, which is a bit, you know, you can dispose of what you don't really. Think. Do we need to go into the hearing and discuss everything? No, we don't. Obviously, <laughs> no, right. we don't, because there's there's so much stuff that is clearly non-disputed. Um, so I mean, you don't have to be as formal as you are in civil procedure in portugal. But but I do think that it makes sense. Maybe not in all cases. In in, in less complex cases, maybe it's not necessary. But but in in specifically in in more complex cases, I think you know once the written phase of the proceedings is over, it is an appropriate moment to try to streamline uh, uh, um, what the actually hot issues are, and where you have to focus from then onward. Disposing of you know factual issues that are common ground. Uh, uh, um, Eventually deciding on bifurcation yeah. could be a good moment to eventually decide on bifurcation of issues. So, yes, I, I think that's a technique that should be used more frequently than it is currently being used.
0: Well, sure, because I mean, I think even at that point, that, that point in time within this lifespan of the proceedings, even if the parties don't necessarily agree... On all of the common ground. It is an opportunity for the tribunal to say, okay, even if you don't agree, here's how we're finding me, Yeah, clients. exactly. Before we get to, you know, and maybe resolving some of those issues might, in fact, open up the lines of communication for settlement, um, make the party rethink how they feel about some of their other issues. You know, I I proposed an idea along those lines at the ICC conference in New York last year. Um, and while everyone said in concept they liked it, uh, almost all the lawyers are like, ah, I don't know if I want to do that. Though. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's true but I, I will tell you one thing that I did in a recent uh, ICC case that I'm chairing ICC has the terms of reference which is a great thing but lawyers and arbitrators have become lazy mm. I'm just putting it out there and so what happens most of the time is that the tribunal prepares a draft draft terms of reference and then you know just leave two sections blank for the parties to provide their summaries mm-hmm. Now, what I've started doing some cases is, I mean, I need to understand the case, and many times, okay, you have very very brief requests for arbitration and answer, so, you know, you just get the gist of the story, but sometimes you, you already have a bit of detail. And so what I've done, at least on, on, on two occasions, and especially this one, the more recent one that I'm remembering now, i already had a lot of information in the request, request and answer, especially in terms of documents. So, what I did was in the draft that I sent out, I said I, I included a section which was, you know, a, um, factual background, mm-hmm. where I basically looked at all the documents. I didn't reproduce what the party said in the research book. This is what the document says, <laughs> full stop, neutral.
0: Right.
1: And then in the uh, 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 party's positions, I wrote what I believe to have understood from the party's positions, and I sent out a draft saying, in those specific sections, the parties are naturally free to review, comment, and or replace if they so wish. Sure. And I also sent out a proposed list of issues to be determined, which is something that you rarely see as well. Mm -hmm. Obviously, with a caveat, at at present, and maybe... Adapted throughout the proceedings and not all questions necessarily have to be answered and others that are not listed now may come up. And at the case management conference, uh, and my co-arbitrators weren't sure about that, but I managed to convince them and said, listen, we're not bound to this. If the parties say no, the parties say no. And at the CMC, both teams of counsel um, thanked the tribunal for having, uh, well, congratulated us on the understanding of the case to date, and thanked us for that work, and basically they, you know, they made slight suggestions to the summary of their respective positions, there's a little bit of discussion on some of the issues, of the list of issues to be determined, but we ended up uh, uh, having a terms of reference uh, with, um, with the list of issues and with a common understanding of the parties of what the dispute is about and what of their respective positions are. And the parties actually thought, and, and they said this at the CMC, it's good to see that we have a tribunal that's actually read everything it's and understands the case. Paying attention, yeah. Paying attention.
0: No, you raise a great point. I think sometimes, um, as a legal community, there can sometimes be this notion that arbitration is just private court, you know, where you have the judge, because it would may be inappropriate for a judge, in that way um, depending on where the national court is but at the end of the day arbitrators are supposed to be helping the parties get to a resolution and if it is the case that it has to go all the way through to an award so be it but if you can help the parties resolve the, their issue in a more efficient manner early on where the, the parties can get back to doing their de facto business I think that's a good thing yeah.
1: I mean I not saying I can do this in every case sure 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 that case was right for it sure I probed the parties. They were extremely happy uh, uh, with with that way of conducting things. The case is now ongoing. It's it's a very very hot dispute. Uh, um, but the parties at least
0: have a clear perspective of yes. how the tribunal sees the matter. Yes. Yes. Right.
1: Which was aligned with what they had exposed in their uh, uh, initial uh, written uh, submissions or request to answer. And
0: um, so, so that's from the tribunal's perspective. I wonder. As sitting as counsel, and this is something I think a lot of folks are, are constantly thinking about: how do you build a relationship with with a client in terms of getting? Because ultimately, when it comes down to that that question or that topic, it's about getting us, the in-house counsel with in-house parties, to trust you as counsel. How do you go about cultivating that relationship? What are some of the things that you try and think about or philosophy? Maybe?
1: Well, I, well, responsiveness is obviously one of them. You have to be responsive. You know the client, especially in disputes, the client has to feel that um, that you're there for them. You're on their side, um, but on their side, being the tough parent. Sure. And sometimes at the beginning, this is difficult, but I have found that in the long run, clients are really thankful for this. So you know you can't
0: sugarcoat. Always-
1: you can't sugarcoat.
0: Not always telling them what you want to hear, what they exactly, want to hear. Exactly, yeah, right.
1: and and I find myself saying that so many times in, in you know in initial meetings. One of my uh, recurrent phrases is okay. Now I'm going to have to ask you a bunch of questions, and please don't get me wrong, but I'm just going to play the devil's devil's advocate here. I'm going to pretend that I'm on the other side and think how the other side is going to think. Sure. And so please don't 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 be offended. But these are questions that, if I were on the other side, I would ask. So, I need to know them from you so that I can understand how so to deal with them. Right. So we can address them. And um, a- another thing that I find, you know, clients hate, and in-house counsel hates, that lawyers have a, a habit of doing is, you know, this huge memos.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: One one uh, in-house uh, counsel, which, who's actually a, a good a good friend of mine, a very large Portuguese company once told me, listen, I simply don't have time. You want to write all the caveats and the memo, do that. But give me the answer in the first three lines, That's because. the part that gets me,
0: is that you have a 20-page, 30-page memoranda, and then the question that you had at the beginning is not answered. That part blows my mind.
1: So this is, um, this is what I also try to do and I, I hammer, um, my team in, in that regard is listen, you know, forget the, you have to have catchy phrases, short sentences, especially Portuguese writing tends to be very, uh,
0: I'm learning that. I'm seeing yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. that. Okay? <laughs>
1: and, and, uh. I'm not like that and, and I was fortunate enough to in, in the early stages of my career to, to train um, and then be an associate at uh, the firm where I stayed my initial 10 years my patrono which is a I think you have that in other countries but not the state. so you have a lawyer an older lawyer that's your sort of mentor through the training period right he was you know completely logical and mathematical in writing as well you know so uh, cutting out all the uh, Yes, basically. Yeah, you know, no, is, yeah. I know he something put, about that. Keep yeah. <laughs> it sweet and short. Uh, the Portuguese writing tends not to be like that. And this is something that I really stress with, with all uh, the associates who work with me is we have to be concise and strict to the point. The client does not want to read a 20 pager. And if you do need to write a 20 pager because you're an internat, then let's include an executive summary at the beginning. Where you have the main highlights and conclusions, and then mm-hmm. if they want to see why and the associated risks and caveats and pros and cons, they can go read the rest. But if you're a board member, or if you're an in-house who has to bring that to the board and spit it out in, in, you know, in 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 five bullet points, we have to provide those five bullet points. Right. Um, so I, th- I think that that clients uh, 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 like as well in in, in house counsel uh, another thing that I try to cultivate uh, uh, and that I think is appreciated by clients is a commercial approach to the handling of the dispute
0: absolutely um, but you can only do that if you understand the business
1: well, but the, you have to understand <laughs> the exactly business. Point, yeah. <laughs> you have to understand the business. So you have to understand what the client does, where they make money. Dispute doesn't make money for clients. It just, you know, it just drains them of money. Uh, typically, ultimately, you know, they can get a favorable outcome, but it drains money. It drains internal resources that have to be allocated. And this is something that I prepare at the outset. I prepare them for at the outset. Right. Many times they don't get the message. They say yes, but I, I, I feel that they don't understand it. But this is something that I typically say. You have to, um, to decide if this is really the route you want to go down. Because this is going to take up loads of time, loads of resources, and bring a lot of frustration.
0: Mm-hmm. And, it's and, <laughs> uh, and it's expensive. And it's expensive.
1: And the outcome is not guaranteed. Sure. Well, and the outcome and is so never going to be exactly what you imagined. It did exactly. Be. Yeah. And so, I'm, I'm sometimes uh, rather blunt uh, with with clients at the beginning, but I have come to conclude that uh, um, that clients appreciate this bluntness. Sure. And I've I've had that feedback many times. You know, um, thank you for pointing that out. And and you know, sometimes you you. <laughs> Uh, well not lose cases because they were never there to begin with you know but clients decide to go other ways but if they do have a dispute later on that they really want to fight they will come to you because they, they, trust, they trust you mm-hmm. You, in being honest with the client and telling them, are you sure you want to go there I'm ready for you I'll battle for you all the way to the very end but please make sure that this is really what you want to do
0: that's right that's right well look on that same line and this is the kind of the last question before we shift a little bit um as you, like many others, have probably seen, there's this huge conversation ongoing right now about the rise of AI, and machine learning, and technology in the practice of law. You know, I've been asking everyone so far this season about, you know, how they think it's going to impact, you know, the world, our, our lives as disputes lawyers. Are there any impacts, that, any impacts that you see or anything that comes to mind for you?
1: I think, well... First, I think we've already seen some impacts, uh, especially in international arbitration and because of the pandemic. I mean, before the pandemic, you had case management conferences that were by phone, and you had in-person hearings, full stop. Eventually, a witness or two might log in. This has changed, and, it's, and the change has come to stay. I'm not going to say that I'm all for all merits hearings being 100% virtual, not at all. Uh, I think some cases merit uh, in-person hearings. Many cases merit in-person merits hearings. But everything else, uh, I mean, you know, case management conferences, procedural hearings for specific topics that have to be uh, decided, I mean, Imagine there's a discussion on the language, there's a discussion on uh, uh, bifurcation or whatever. You don't need to fly teams of lawyers around the world to to do that. So obviously there's that, which we're already seeing and is in place today. Uh, Then there's document management. Uh, Nowadays, even tribunals composed of very senior people uh, you already see, them. So I don't need a physical bundle, I don't want a physical bundle, mm-hmm. which I think because it was a hassle, you know, yeah. shipping round bundles, uh, first of all, you're spending tons of money on paper, uh, damaging the environment, by the way, uh, you know, and, and, and then it's, it's just a sight for sore eyes to see if the hearing give out a paper that just goes to be destroyed, you think, know, my goodness, yeah. why? Um, and 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 you will see nowadays. I have seen recently, you know, tribunals of very senior people who are already saying, "I don't need a physical bundle. I'm fine doing electronically." So I think obviously that document management is 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 a huge step up. And then I think what we will see probably in the near future. And I honestly do think that lawyers desperately need IT training, mm-hmm. desperately. Uh, in my team I mean word processing I'm the one that knows more about word processing and I'm always telling them off and I actually did a three hour internal uh, uh, training here at the firm you know because people just get angry at computers and don't try to understand how stuff works and uh, you know using cross references using the formatting the document at the very beginning just relieves you of so much stress at the end so One, I think lawyers have to become more IT savvy in the basics. I'm talking about word processing, not anything else. But going back to document management, I think you already have softwares which help you organize documents. That's a huge leap. And if all lawyers don't start realizing that this type of software is out there and the amount of time it saves, certain teams will obviously become more efficient than others and those who lag behind will, 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 will... will start losing work because they're not as efficient and they will ultimately uh, be more expensive or they will lose money. Uh, they will be working for much, much uh, lower fees uh, and having a double amount of work. Uh, and I think what we might start to see in the near future, I mean, you know, chat GPT. Yes. I think there's always going to have to be human touch but there is already software out there and I think it's going to be de- developed that will for instance allow you to have a draft of the timeline of the facts, factual chronology of the case yes
0: yeah, no, that's we're not years. far
1: from that we're not far from that, you know, you chuck the documents the the, big... the the IT is going to sort out chronology brief summary of contents of the document and basically you'll have half of your factual background obviously then you will add in the little adjectives that you want to add and uh, you know the non-neutral expressions that that you want to use to advocate your case but but this will be be groundbreaking because what you have now is you know chucking three boxes of paper on a junior associate and telling okay organize this and then prepare me a a, a word document or an excel spreadsheet with the chronology of, of of the case I think AI is going to get there very quick.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think that at the end of the day, it's the time. It's the time savings, um, and I think that that's the question that that's going to change how law firms have to build, have to uh, model, and that's going to ultimately change how the whole industry works. Um, okay, listen, uh, we're going to shift a little bit um, to make sure that uh, you know our time is skipping right by. Um, I love asking folks when you think back on and you mentioned some of this at the outset of our conversation on some of the the guiding influences or mentors role models anything like that can you think back on who some of those folks might have been or what some of those pivotal moments might have been for you um, in your career so far well
1: in terms of arbitration arbitration I can't tell you that I have had a mentor or a role model because of How I got there is, as I explained, obviously there were people that were important uh, throughout uh, my career, Uh, but I I wouldn't say with a specific focus on arbitration. One person that I must say has always been there and will be and is my number one fan and supporter is my husband, who has nothing to do with arbitration. Uh But he is a rock, he's solid as a rock very blunt, uh, very smart, and um, he's my number one fan, so so I think with, without my husband being who he is, I wouldn't uh, have the career I have today. Sure. Um, I'm a woman, and you have to be a very secure man to uh, allow, uh, quote-unquote, your wife to you know just take off and fly so 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 that's that's and and he's the person that I go to when I have to make decisions when tough decisions uh, he's he's my number one confidant and mentor in life and part of that life is my business life my profession so definitely and then obviously I had I had some people uh, along the way who who brought me to where I am today as as a professional and obviously also as a human being but uh I've, I've had positive influences, thank goodness, in all the places that I've worked at. Um, and even outside uh, my specific workplace, I mean, I was lucky enough to find people uh, uh, in the arbitration community that thought, okay, okay, here is a young lady who is bright and who is going places, let me. Give uh, uh, you know, give give a leg up because she deserves it. Um, so, it's difficult to point out uh, names without being unfair to others that I that I wouldn't say. But I mean, in Portugal, I, I would obviously have to m- mention Tito Font who was uh, the partner, uh, head of disputes at Uria when I was uh, there, who loved to see his people uh, fly, and and uh, obviously he was he was very important. Uh, uh, José Miguel Júdice. Uh, who, with whom I've never worked, but... Uh, one of the, the foundational folks. Yeah, he, he's definitely one of the foundational folks. And, and he was the one from the older generation that very clearly saw if we want to bring Portugal into the first world, we have to show off our uh, younger generation. And, and he did that. And he did that. He did that not only with me, with, with other people but I will be forever grateful uh, to him uh, for doing that.
0: Well, Julius is coming by the show later this season, so we'll make sure that, you know, while well, I can mention, hey, you know, you got you know, people that appreciate stuff that you did, and I'm sure he'll have a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, uh,
1: he, he, he is uh, one of the people that is more responsible for having brought us to where we are um, today. And obviously, there were other people who I worked with. As I said, my patron when I was a baby lawyer, uh, you know, was the one that taught me how to write in a concise manner. Sure, for sure. Sure, sure, you know, sure. I would come, you know, very proud with a six-page application, and he would trim it down to two pages. You know, yeah. back in the day when trimming down
0: was on, red Earth, Ake, yeah. yes, ink. <laughs> and
1: I remember the first thing that he gave me like, to first day. I thought, I thought he was joking. Mm. Honest to God, I thought he was joking. Um, he called his secretary um, and said, Luch, can you bring the file of Mrs. So-and-so to Sophia? He, said, Huge file. he says, okay, now I want you to pr- prepare the written pleadings for the Supreme Court. Honest to God, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I thought it was a joke. Yeah. Then I realised it wasn't. Uh, then I stressed a lot, and, and then I did my best. And then I sat down with him as things were at the time, and you know, I had to sit down while he read every single line and crossed out. And I think you know, the, the top part, which was the name of the place, <laughs> the name of the respondent, the court, that was that, that 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 was okay. Everything else was probably scribbled and scratched out. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, but that's how you learn. That's how you learn. Uh, So he he was very important also in teaching me how to present and how to write concisely and effectively, for for, for sure.
0: No, absolutely. I think that makes, um, all of that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and, you know, I think uh, those just sounds like great influences on your early career. And on to this day, you still have lessons that you learned from that. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, Keeping, well, shifting a little bit again. um, What are you reading right now? What's (laughs) in your bookshelf?
1: Okay. Uh, when you get to be a middle-aged woman like I am now, everybody gets annoyed when I say this, but technically that's what I am. Mm. I'm turning fifty this year, so I guess I guess that's congratulations. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. What what I find nowadays, Chris, is, you know, between being, you know, a lawyer, an arbitrator, head of disputes at a firm, mother of two teenagers, you're not there yet, but you will understand what I'm talking about. When you have teenagers, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, I used to be an intense reader and and nowadays, you know, and you just read so much work that sometimes it gets a bit challenging. So I read less than I used to. But what I, must, what I will say is that I'm a sucker for, uh, for historic novels. I yes. love reading about history and historic uh, novels in particular, which have a mix of, you know, uh, uh, a story, so it's not uh, necessarily, uh, uh, so it, it helps you take your mind out of theory, serious things, but at the same time, it gives you historical information. I love history, so anything that is historical, I really like, and I like uh, reading biographies in that sense as well. Uh, um and 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 diving into that, I'm actually reading slowly, uh, quite slowly, but I am reading something that is actually a little bit of work related, which is the um, three Ages of International Arbitration by Mikhail Giti, who mm-hmm. was who I was asked to to host a couple of weeks ago here in Lisbon at a lecture. And I just thought, you know, that the, 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 the topic was so fascinating that I bought the book and I am slowly um, reading it. Okay. No, that's great. That's
0: really cool. And what we'll tag that in the show. That's really good. Um, how about music? What kind of music are you into? Uh,
1: I'm very classic. Uh So I, I sort of like all types of music. Any favorite artists? I mean, not really. I just, you know, I just love listening to music and and nowadays with with, with, with two teenage kids, you may imagine. uh, I mean, obviously I'm a sucker for 80s music because that's my generation and it
0: was the best music ever.
1: Uh, (laughs) Which my kids also actually think. You know, it's funny because I...
0: But there's like this revival right now that's going on. There right? is. I, 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 you know.
1: It wasn't us. I mean, we didn't impose that on them at all.
0: No, but, but suddenly, Suddenly,
1: I find my daughter, you know, all about, you know, took the 80s back. Music and, and like, even the fashion. How do you know now? that?
0: You know, you see people... How do you know that? People in my, my my younger siblings' generation, you know, these Gen Z, are coming around with the shoulder pads and, you know, some of these jeans, and I'm just like, okay, what... Like.
1: What's, what yeah. what's going on? I mean, fashion-wise, it wasn't the most amazing decade, but, yeah, it's coming. Anyway, so, I mean, I'm very eclectic, from musicals to hard rock, um, okay. I love everything, and I love dancing and singing, so, um, okay. so, I mean, if you invite me for karaoke, I will go, I know it's a bit corny, but... but we, We've uh,
0: been talk a few of us have been talking around this arbitral karaoke thing, we're going to make it happen. Um, I'm in. <laughs> all right, well, that's, that's got to happen, that's got to happen. Um, i Let's say, and it's probably one of the last subset of questions we have here, Um, if you were approached by a current student, recent graduate, someone looking to make the shift into the field, um, what advice would you give them about trying to break an international arbitration? I would
1: tell them studying is not enough.
0: (laughs) True, that is true.
1: You know, you can do LLMs, you can do conferences, you can do everything, but it won't cut it. Um, You have to put in the hard work. And, and and the hard work means uh, uh, from A to Z and doing everything. You know, you have to be the person who gets the three boxes of documents and sorts through them and organizes them and makes sense out of them. Uh, and that's long hours. It's hard work. Uh, but you'll never be a good lawyer if you don't do that. Uh, you'll never know how to handle a case if you don't go through all those stages. Nobody is born an international arbitration practitioner. Uh, tier one, you have to go through the motions. Like in everything in life, you have to grow up uh, in the profession. Uh, obviously, training is important. Uh, you don't need to have training to get to the profession, as I didn't. Uh, not, I mean, obviously, I trained along the way, but I didn't have specific training when I started working on, 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 on arbitration. Um, and I'm happy that nowadays younger generations have access to all that because they have a leg up. But that's not enough. Uh, uh, you need to put in uh, the work, and that means long hours. And that means I know this, especially for the younger generations, is is not politically correct. But you know, if the filing is on Monday, you're going to have to work through the weekend with all <clears> in <throat> all
0: like <laughs> you know. Yeah, no. I'm sorry, but it is what it is. Uh, well, we're right, and I, think that's and, and I will be there too. I'm not at home yeah. enjoying
1: my weekend while the junior associates are, are going through the, you know, the paper motion. But you just, you just have to do. Um, there's no magic wand, as I usually say. These, you know, this isn't a sprint. Yeah. It's a marathon, so you have to endure. You have to um, to run at your pace. Keep it up, and you'll get there.
0: No, I think that's absolutely right. and I think the only caveat, you know, I would say for, to, to stand up for our younger ones out there is that there's a difference between, you know, you've got a filing and a project that demands it for a certain amount of time and then that being the chronic way that, you know, years... No, 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 no that, sure, but that sure. That shouldn't be... Uh, that shouldn't, I don't think that's... Listen, necessary. but
1: I'm, I'm very flexible with my team in that right. regard. And I think that's why, I think, yeah. <laughs> they all respect me and like and working with me if we have to pull an, all, an all-nighter Chris I'm here too yeah exactly I don't go That's home and leave right. them yeah. but if they tell me listen uh, do you mind if you know I take the afternoon off because I have some personal so sure as long as you know as, as long as the work is ready on time and exactly. quality, I'm really fine with however <laughs> <I'm laughs> you go about doing it but then when I say listen I'm sorry but you know th- I know it's Friday night but we're going to have to with stay we
0: all hands there. on deck yeah they stay and they don't frown. Right. Um, that's T1. Yeah. I'm speaking for them, but
1: but honestly, this is how I feel. They feel about. And me. Listen, Miranda's
0: uh, team that's listening to the show. Yeah, you, you <laughs> write in and let us know. That <laughs> I know, it's a joke, it's a joke. Um, Listen, if it was a 5 p.m. on a Friday, let's say all the work is done, you can do whatever you'd like, wave magic wand, anything along those lines. Um, how would you spend your ideal weekend?
1: I think it would t- depend slightly on the mood. Uh, if there's great weather out there, I'd probably try to go out for dinners and dinner and drinks with, uh, with friends. Yeah. You know, a nice summer evening in Lisbon can be pretty,
0: pretty, pretty it's nice. Magical, yeah. Or uh, uh, maybe
1: try, my, my, my kids are teenagers, so I can do this now, you mm. know, just grab my husband and go out for the weekend uh, someplace nice at the beach. If I'm exhausted, my dream weekend might just be, s- you know, snowing up on the couch with my blankie, my iPad, my, my silly Netflix shows that are no-brainers and, you know, just... Uh, what, what are you just, watching? What's on Netflix? What are you watching right now? Uh, right, well, right now, I'm not watching anything on Netflix. I'm watching on uh, Amazon Prime, an Argentinian uh, show that's, it's called, uh, what's it called? The... Uh, I'm thinking in Portuguese and Spanish now, but, but basically it's about uh, um, it's in the late '90s. It's, it's, it's based sure. on historical facts. It's it's in Spanish to show, obviously it's it's an Argentinian show, but it's about you know a uh, um, uh, police agent who was infiltrated in the Jewish community. Oh wow! Uh, uh, and then later on repented, you know, his actions within. Uh, it's a very, that you go. I'm a sucker for historical stuff. Yeah, exactly. I've seen some trends. So, so that, that's what I'm watching right now. I'm just trying to remember the name of the show and I can't.
0: If you know it in Portuguese, Portuguese. what's the name in Portuguese? It's...
1: Uh, yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. Okay, so like a weekend that. on the couch with the iPad if you're tired. Wanted to if I'm exhausted,
1: do you
0: know? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Okay, that sounds like a good weekend. Um Final question. Um, Ticket training. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <The blanket. laughs> As it's been known to do, especially in North Pole. No. Otherwise,
1: friends... Beach or countryside, I also like that, and um, hanging out.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Final, final question. Um, any shout outs um, to the folks at home? Any, you know, name dropping you want to do, anything like that? Uh, well, I know you've done some already throughout the episode. I have, yeah.
1: I have, I have. So, you know, I guess,
0: I mean, a shout out to you, Chris. I think this oh. show is great. <laughs> now, I'll honestly, take it, thank you. Uh, I, th- I think this is
1: a, a great really uh, fun uh, to be here. Uh, so you know, shout out for putting this together. I mean, it's just h- such hard work, and and uh, the rhythm that you've been keeping is really is really great to see. So so you know, congrats on on that. Well, thank
0: you. You, you folks at home can't see. I'm blushing. I'm blushing right now. <laughs> um, thank you for that. So thank you for making the time. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming by.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great. You want to sign us off. Uh, Yes, so I am Sophia Martins, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal.
0: Thank you so much, and we will see see y'all next time. So, there you have it. Another fast but fun conversation. As you likely picked up, because of her experience in multiple jurisdictions and being involved with arbitrations in Portugal across generations, Sophia brings a unique perspective and was an absolute delight to talk with. A couple of notes before we get out of here this week. There has been a ton of news and developments ongoing in the arbitration world this summer, which is frankly a really terrible time for Disputes Digest to take a short break. However, we are retooling that show so that we can bring you up to speed on news in a more dynamic and engaging way that we think you'll love. As always, if you're enjoying the show, we hope that you'll take a quick moment to leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice, or share the show with a friend or colleague. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week. And until next time, you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.